You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Peace be with you. Today we are continuing on in our sermon series in Matthew. We're actually I'm going to be finishing up Matthew for this semester. We'll pick back up in the fall. Um, Next week, I'm really excited. We are going to be starting a sermon series in Philippians, which will um, last us a a good chunk of the summer. So really excited to be starting that sermon series next week. I want to invite you to join us next week for that as we start that new series. But today, to finish up in our sermon series in Matthew, we're going to be looking at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 35. So if you have a Bible somewhere around, I want to invite you um, to grab that and actually open it and look at God's Word with me. If not, um, you can find um, the verses on the screen. Hear the Word of the Lord. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began banging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything That was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly father, uh, 
this morning, as we come to your word, we ask that through it, you would change our hearts and our minds. God, that we would see today that um, your, your love, the, the thing that you call your church to, is to lovingly confront one another for the sake of purity in the church. But we also see, God, that um, in this text, that as the church, we are supposed to lovingly forgive in the same manner that we have been forgiven. Jesus, help us to know and understand these realities. Help us to see today how much we truly owed and how much we truly have been forgiven. We pray all this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. So today we we find Jesus in, in the middle of one of his major teachings in Matthew. This discourse, it's mainly directed at the church and, and how the church should conduct itself. How should we engage with one another? Last week, Pastor James began to unpack this a little bit, and, and today we'll see two more realities for the church that um, go right alongside with what Pastor James talked about last week. We'll see this week that the church both confronts and forgives. But vital to our understanding of these calls to confront and forgive is that both of these are motivated by the, fair, the very thing that motivates all of Jesus' kingdom, and that's love. Love for God and love for neighbor. So rather than looking at um, these calls from the stance of what must I go and do, today we're going to look at this from the aspect of love. If we say that we are truly kingdom citizens, if we are a church that is committed to and shaped by the teaching of King Jesus, then what must our love look like? The first thing that we see in this text today in verses 15 through 20 is that love confronts. Love confronts. As the father of an almost uh, two-year-old boy who is adventurous, who's exploring the world around him, who's trying to learn what things are and and what they do, I find myself oftentimes saying, no, or don't do that, or hey, that will hurt you. say those things a lot. These days, baby James is obsessed with, with being outside so sometimes we'll, we'll go outside and sit on the front porch and we'll let him just roam around the front yard. Um, I'm a free-range parent, so I'm great with that. Sarah, you know, sometimes struggles. But um, he doesn't always, baby James doesn't always quite understand or, or he doesn't always see the dangers that exist around him. You know, we gently remind him when we get outside, hey, James, make sure you stay in our yard. Make sure you play in our grass. But as he wanders further and further, the warnings and the the reminders grow louder and louder. And sometimes when he veers down our driveway towards the well-trafficked street, a greater response is demanded from me as his father. I have to yell, James, you can't go in the street. But usually that's not enough. So I have to get up off the porch. I have to run. I have to chase after him, pick him up and bring him back. Now, all all my saying, no, James, we we don't chew on rocks, or hey, don't touch the entrails of the cat-gnarled rabbit in our front yard, or James, don't go in the street. With all these things, they they aren't said because I hate my son. They're said because I I love my son. I value his life. I value his flourishing. I, I want him to see his second birthday. The the things that I'm trying to instruct him to do 
They're, they're not preferential things, but they're, they're consequential. Love confronts. Verses 15 through 20, they show us this reality in the church. This section um, that we're looking at today, it outlines what is commonly referred to as church discipline. The practice of church discipline has waxed and waned throughout, the church, uh, throughout church history. And with it, I would say the church's witness has waxed and waned as well. One historian in reference to John Wesley and the 18th century English revival, um, his name's uh, Gerald Craig, he says this, he says, wherever church discipline was enforced, numbers rose and spiritual vitality increased. You know, today our culture says that it's not right to point out people's wrongdoings. If you do so, you're not just confronting the sin of the person, you're actually attacking who they are. You're attacking their very being. And to do anything other than that, to to confront somebody is unloving. But in reality, the opposite is true. When When I tell my son, hey, turn around, don't go down the path to the street, because if you do, you could get hit by a car and worst case, die. That's not unloving. To, to say nothing and let him wander to impending doom is unloving. Again, that, that's not a preferential thing to do that, to warn my son. That's consequential to warn him of the seriousness of what he's doing. Love confronts. Here's what uh, theologian Dale Bruner writes in his commentary on Matthew. He says, when the church disciplines Christians, she will more effectively disciple non-Christians. A disciplining church will prove more loving in the long run than a church that advertises God's love, but then shows no great interest in whether this love is practiced by her members. What this commentator is saying that if we in a church let sin run rampant, if we let unloving practices run rampant in our church, then what does that say about whether or not we're really loving? Now, there are clear guidelines that are laid out here in the scripture about church discipline, because to be clear, there is an unloving way to practice church discipline. There's a way to do so vindictively or um, in a manner that is not um, laid out by Jesus' teaching. So there there is order to this. But the practice itself, we need to be clear, is not unloving. So here's what Jesus lays out about church discipline here in this short um, section of verses. First, church discipline is to be practiced in-house. Verse 15, it says that if your brother sins against you, meaning someone in your household, then go tell him his fault. 1 Corinthians 5, 15, um, Paul says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. So church discipline and the practice doesn't mean we go on this crusade to right every wrong in society. It's not our job. Our job, first and foremost, is to call non-Christians to believing faith. And then we can um, help them along the path of pursuing righteousness. But so first, church discipline is to be practiced in-house. Second, church discipline is about consequential matters, not preferential matters. Verse 15, again, it says, if your brother sins against you. 
Not if your brother does something that you don't like or they do something different than maybe you would do it. But if your brother sins against you, if they violate that which is laid out in Scripture, then you can confront them and you should confront them. Three, church discipline is restorative and not punitive. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are, who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. As it says in Matthew 18.15, um, the verse we just looked at, the hope is always to win the person who is in sin over to the gospel. As one writer says, it's, it's evangelizing the evangelized. It's reminding those who know the gospel or proclaim the gospel of the gospel. Fourth, church discipline is orderly. There's a very clear process here. It says it starts with one-on-one, okay? You don't gossip about them. You don't post passive-aggressive things about them on Facebook. You deal with it privately first. You um, go with the hope that you can point out the way in which they've sinned against you, and you can point them to the gospel, The point is not to win an argument, but it's to win a brother or sister. If they don't respond, continuing in the order, then you can bring two to three witnesses for accountability's sake. If they still don't respond in repentance, then the matter is to be taken before the church members. And the church is supposed to cry out to them and plead with them to repent. And then if they still don't respond, And Jesus says here that they should be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. They should be removed from the fellowship. Fifth, and arguably most importantly, church discipline is always to be done in humility and in prayer. Though I put this last, I think it's the most important thing. We we have to remember that this lesson that Jesus is giving us on church discipline comes on the heels of him telling his disciples that greatness in the kingdom comes through humility. Galatians 6.1, again, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person, person with a gentle spirit. Any, any confrontation, pursuit in pride will almost certainly go poorly because confrontation done out of pride is usually only worried about winning an argument. It's only worried about being right. It's also sometimes used to score points of vengeance, maybe to embarrass a person or to shame them. Confrontation is pursued in pride. It's never pursued in in the posture of trying to win a brother over, but rather it's trying to win over a brother or a sister. Jesus goes on, he says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind or prohibit on earth will have been bound, prohibited in heaven. And whatever you loose or permit on earth will have been loosed, permitted in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. So we we have to have a right understanding of prayer to understand what Jesus is saying. You know, oftentimes we think of prayer as this bottom-up practice, meaning I'm directing what's going on in the prayer room. But in reality, prayer is always top-down. 
Meaning, we pray, but only as the Spirit of God guides us to praying and asking the right things to God. Where do we see that? Well, well, Jesus says here, where two or three are gathered, I am with them. So if we are genuinely pursuing prayer with the right posture of humility, Jesus is joining us in our prayer times. And even further than that, he's leading us in our prayer times. Prayer is top down because Jesus and the Spirit are leading us upwards in our prayer. So that doesn't mean this process of church discipline is foolproof, right? Because we've all got our sinful flesh that we're battling with. But if we ourselves pursue confrontation and church discipline in prayer and humility, we can trust God's guidance for us. We can trust that his process that he's laid out for us in Scripture will work. As a church, we need to remember that love confronts, love confronts sin. We see in God's word in Proverbs eleven nine 9, that sin leads to death. If we believe that, we need to confront sin. Here's what Proverbs eleven nine 9 says, genuine righteousness leads to life, but pursuing evil leads to death. Church, if we are not helping our brothers and sisters work towards holiness and purity, we're not loving them. If we see sinful patterns persisting in people's lives and we're not engaging with them on these issues, we are not loving them. Love confronts. We also see in this text that love forgives. Look, I'm, I'm so thankful for Peter. Peter is the guy that he says what we are all thinking, okay? He's trying to figure out the practical implication of everything that Jesus is saying. And so he asks Jesus, he says, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? You know, if you're like me, you may have trouble seeing actually how these two passages connect, But Peter's question gives us a clue. Peter's question, it actually goes all the way back up to the top. It goes all the way back up to verse 15, which talks about winning a brother over to Christ if they respond in repentance when we confront them in their sin. So Peter's thinking, okay, let's say all this goes well. I go to my brother who sins against me. I bring it up to him and he repents and seeks my forgiveness. How many times do I have to do that? Surely that can't go on forever, right? There has to be a limit to this. It's important to see that that Peter, he's at least somewhat catching on um, to Jesus' radical new kingdom ethics. Because in, in Peter's day, there was a limit. You were only required to forgive somebody three times if they sinned against you. So Peter, at the very least, he sees that the love of Jesus requires that he go above and beyond that which is taught in his day. But Peter still doesn't understand the magnitude to which he must forgive. Jesus responds to him, he says, I tell you not as many as seven, but 77 times or 70 times seven, as most translations read. So Peter's virtue is there, He understands that to be a Christ follower, he must be a forgiving person. But his weakness in his thinking is that there's some type of limitation to this forgiveness. 
And so to show this, Peter, as he does so well, I'm sorry, to Peter and his peers, Jesus, um, which he does often and so well, he tells Peter and the disciples a story about an unforgiving servant. So there's a servant who owes his master, what the text says, 10,000 talents. This is literally, in the Greek language, this is the largest number that can be said. It's the largest possible um, number, 10,000, paired with the largest possible denomination of money. It's the highest, uh, the highest number attached to the highest denomination. Some scholars go so far as to note that this sum of money would have actually been larger than all the money in circulation in uh, the country of Israel at the time. So Jesus is using hyperbolic language here to prove a point. He's saying this slave owes more than you can even comprehend a person having. One commentator says we should think of this as zillions of dollars. It's a a number that's just so astronomical we can't even quantify it. So this slave, he owes his master zillions of dollars. But the servant, he goes and pleads with the master to be patient. He promises the master that he'll pay him back. First of all, again, Jesus is using hyperbolic language. This is so ridiculous that the slave would even, or the servant would even think that he can pay him back. The amount of money that he owes, it it would have taken the average servant 60 million days to pay off. That's 160,000 years. Seems like he probably can't fit that into his lifetime. But he's still asking for patience for an impossible task. What's beautiful is the master goes beyond giving the servant what he wants. The servant, the man just asked for time and patience, but the master goes beyond that and he grants him forgiveness. The debt is wiped away. And after being forgiven a zillion dollars, the servant remembers, oh, hey, there's a servant that owes me a few hundred bucks. So he seeks him out, he strangles him. And the fellow servant pleads with him in the exact same way to be patient, to let him pay him back, which actually could have happened. The other servants, they witness this and they're deeply grieved over the injustice that has just happened. So they go to the master. The master then addresses the unforgiving servant. He addresses his failure, which is the lack of response from the mercy that was given to him. And the text says in verse 34, and because he was angry, the master handed him over the unforgiving servant to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed, which we know is an impossible task. And then Jesus ends the story with his main point. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Now this is a strong statement, but this isn't different from Jesus' previous teachings. If you remember Matthew 6, 15, he says, but if you don't forgive others, your father in heaven will not forgive your offenses. These strong statements from Jesus, they show the importance of forgiveness amongst God's people because where there is genuine repentance, there should always be genuine forgiveness. One of the great human sin issues that we have is under assessing the debt of sin that we have before a holy God and over-assessing 
the debt of sin that others have done against us. We owed a zillion dollars, but we can only look around and see the few hundred bucks that our brothers and sisters owe us. Look, if you know and understand the weight of your sin, the reality that your sin can never ever be repaid, that you owe a debt that is incomprehensible, zillions of dollars worth of sin, it makes you appreciate how much you truly have been forgiven. And it makes you appreciate the truly incomprehensible love that Jesus has for you. That's what Jesus is getting at when he tells a parable in Luke 7, 47. He ends it by saying, I tell you her sins, and there are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Jesus is trying to get us to understand that an unforgiving person may be an unforgiven person. Why? Because a heart that knows that they have been forgiven a debt that they could never pay is always inclined to forgive others in a similar way. A heart that has genuinely experienced mercy should properly respond in mercy to others. We see that elsewhere in Scripture in Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul says, And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. And in the memory verse that we've been learning in our CGs, Colossians 3, 12 through 13, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and here's the kicker, and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Now, now don't get it twisted, okay? You trying to be a forgiving person on the outside doesn't make you forgiven on the inside. But those who are forgiven on the inside become forgiving on the outside. When, when we think about these calls for the church to lovingly confront others and lovingly forgive others, it is a call to us to look to Jesus, the one who has done these things for us. King Jesus, he came to earth to lovingly confront the world about its sin and to lovingly forgive it of its sin. King Jesus is standing before you today and no matter where you are, he's both confronting your sin and forgiving it without limits. No matter where we find ourselves today, we need to look to King Jesus. And we need to look at his sacrificial death on the cross, which is the ultimate expression of love. And it's in that death on the cross that we see confrontation and forgiveness meet. He confronted the sins of the world and in one marvelous act of love, he forgave them all. It's in the person of Jesus that we see that love confronts and that love forgives. And the invitation for those who follow him is to do likewise. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. 
For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.